Have you ever asked yourself, am I a bad therapist? Well, you're in the right place. I'm Allie Joy, licensed professional counselor and board-certified art therapist. And I'm Katherine Escare, a clinical psychologist, and this is Am I a Bad Therapist? Join us each week for stories from behind the closed therapy door. You'll hear experiences that made us ask, am I a bad therapist? Including bloopers, jaw droppers, and other difficult moments that normalize the unique struggles of modern day therapists. This is a space with no experts, no gurus, and no hierarchies, just humans sitting in similar chairs. And while we're not the gatekeepers for good and bad therapy, because we're bad therapists too, we are here to shine a light on the difficult decisions therapists face on a daily basis and to normalize that mysterious gray area of clinical practice that no one wants to talk about. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So, Catherine, we, well, I know at least that you do quite a mix of projects, uh, and that includes your executive coaching along with clinical work and everything else. But what is one thing that you wish more therapists knew about coaches? It's a That's a big question. I don't know if I can give you just one, but I really wish that the public and other therapists actually leaned into learning about what coaches do because we are not all unethical. We are not all practicing beyond our scope and we are not all causing damage. Um, There are a lot of us who went and are educated in coaching and educated in clinical work and are able to deliver a different type of service that meets a different type of need. And um, I'm really excited to get into the conversation with Tara because she highlights a really pivotal moment in her career that she transitions away from rewarding clinical work and she gets into the reasons why and develops her own coaching practice and how she manages the ethics, the boundaries, and how she delivers services that are outside of her clinical license, but maybe tap into the same skill sets. So um, there's a lot of us ethical coaches out there, um, myself included, and I'm just so glad she represents those of us who practice clinically and in the coaching field so well. Yes, and I agree. And as someone, I will say, and I talk about it in the episode coming up, like I feel like I don't know enough about coaching. Like as a therapist, you more so hear like the not great stories and not, I do still have so much respect for what coaches do, but that stands out. And I really love how in the conversation, it's just really highlighted how to ethically do coaching, the importance behind setting it up. Like I feel like I learned so much in this episode, so I know our listeners are going to do the same. It's a really valuable conversation. And it's just the anecdotes from Tara, just her own experiences. I think part of this issue of not knowing about coaching is that there's not a lot of 
um, there's not one congregating group of therapists mm -hmm. who coach. And so there's not one standard gold standard of practice or of business setup. So it is about tapping into your network and people who have gone there before you and learning and getting consultation um, so that you can know what you don't know and really challenging those assumptions um, based on based on anecdotal evidence um, of the world around us. So before we get into our conversation with Tara, this is a big disclaimer that this is not a substitute for clinical consultation, ethical guidance, or coaching or therapy itself. And this episode is, does not qualify you to go and be an ethical coach. Make sure you seek out additional resources, education, and consultation. This is a great starting point, but please dive in more um, before offering coaching services. Well said, Catherine. And this is episode number 37 of Am I a Bad Therapist? Let's get into it. Tara, welcome to Am I a Bad Therapist? Thank you, guys. Good to be here. So before we get into a situation that made you question your abilities or your ethics as a therapist, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. So I'm Tara. I'm a licensed clinical social worker based in South Florida. I'm in Palm Beach County, Florida. Uh, I also have a coaching practice called Finish Line Mindset, which specifically caters to the mental health needs of athletes. Mm. So I do mental performance coaching with athletes. And a lot of my work is based in prevention care. Uh, that's my big platform was even when I was practicing more social work than than coaching and that side of things. And I also recently started a podcast with my co-host Sherry, who is actually my clinical supervisor. So ah. we, <laughs> that was a match made in heaven and continues to be. So we like to just, you know, complain and BS all over our podcast. And we, it's been a really good echo chamber for that. That's amazing. What's the name of your podcast? Let's be real. Ooh, love that. Ooh. Yeah. Trying to dismantle some of the issues that we see in mental health access and care and, normalizing the process of gaining mental health care, but also with normalizing its access, it's also been very difficult to get those resources to people that we are both passionate about receiving them. So like I said, we just complain about it and then try to bring people on that <laughs> that can help find solutions too. I can absolutely relate to that. And especially in my hometown where I serve, like that's incredible. And I feel like I could, we could have a whole podcast on prevention, mm -hmm. yes. um, the taking the approach to marketing our mental health services as preventative. Uh, that's a no brainer, but ooh, I would love to ask you more about that later. But Definitely. before we do, Tara, tell us what made you wonder, am I a bad therapist? Well... <sighs> I mentioned it, I have a coaching practice. So transitioning from work as a clinical social worker, providing crisis services, providing like basic services. I was in our school system for a long time here and loved that work, but to divert away from it, to choose to do my own entrepreneurial adventure and make that path for myself because Unfortunately, while we're getting there with mental health care, we are not there in terms of me reaching the potential that I wanted to access as a social worker, as an entrepreneur, as a woman of color who wanted to bring more access to things to my communities. And I, I can't say it enough. I loved my work. I have a price. I would go back to that work, <laughs> but that's not a realistic price for, for public school or any school, to be honest. And 
I think I feel that I have been a bad therapist in abandoning some of that work. And I use that mm. word intentionally because I still suffer with that feeling of leaving the middle school that I was at. Those kids worked so hard. They were so good at therapy. I know it's a weird thing to say, but they were so hungry for the work. And even if I marketed it as therapy, they showed up. No one was scared of it. There was a lot of respect for the work and it was a really cool community to work in. So. I guess it's this calamity of ethics of who am I in this big world of mental health care and social work, which already diverts into so many different mm -hmm. avenues on its own. And it's, it's been a struggle. So making that decision, which I think you could tell I still struggle with it. If I reflect on it too long, it makes it breaks my heart a little bit still. But I try to stay connected. I try to be committed. I do sliding scale. I, I have um, one space for a pro bono client. I'm still on app based therapy. I won't say the company name because I'm not a fan of them. But I'm still I still have one client and I'm encouraging her to move off because I will take her as my pro bono client. I'm like, I just need to I need to exit out of that. Um, but the leading up moment. It took probably a year, which is standard for me in, in making big decisions like this. So working in the school system, loving every day, obviously it was hectic. My, my job responsibilities was a lot like a crisis therapist and case manager. So mm -hmm. any crisis work on campus, as the licensed practitioner on staff, I would help handle whether it was um, what we call Baker Acts in Florida. So involuntary holds or hospitalizations, um, alongside with our resource officer, who I have a ton of respect for, because he was very much on on my side. I want to say it's my side, but I had a very specific way that I wanted to help maintain care and reduce trauma when it comes to that. Um, so working hand in hand with him was really good. Uh, doing a lot of crisis based work. So if a fight broke out, you know, I was working with one of the parties of that of that fight. It was just two and then doing a lot of like on site, like someone's having a really bad day. Someone's like coming home or coming to school with whatever concerns they have that day. And it gets overwhelming and no one's talked to this child before. Then I get first contact. So a lot of that really like that crisis, immediate touch and go work. And then a lot of case management where that school is 1400 kids. Wow. I couldn't possibly have a caseload of all the kids that needed that level of care. So I was doing a lot of uh, outreach and wraparound with our mm -hmm. local agencies and providers. So got really in touch with that work too, which was really cool getting to know a lot of people and be really, really connected with other licensed providers. Um, so I was really touching on all the things social work was like the reason it was appealing to me in the first place. Cause as soon as I got licensed, y'all, I realized I didn't want to do therapy full time. It was not going to be for me. Like the way the system was set up, I'm like, all right, so I'm going to have 20 clients a week and then 20 hours of notes. Maybe not. <laughs> Maybe not. Let's, let's not do that to myself. But literally a week after I got licensed. So all of this build up, build up, loving the work, getting my paycheck, being like, I love what I do, but I don't know how I could survive retiring making 65 a year that's not the life mm -hmm. that I wanted to see for myself that's not why I went to grad school and I'm part of the the millennials that were sold the dream of 
go to school and then go get your grad Mm -hmm. degree and then go do all these things and you will have the white picket fence, so to say. Mm -hmm. And just realistically, that's not that's not the journey that we're on anymore. Things have changed drastically and that's also out of our control. So making this path that wasn't private practice. I do have a small private practice, but the focus wasn't for me to go full private practice in my area, which is the path a lot of people in my field and my even my uh, other people in other schools with the same title as me were en- ended up doing. I, I knew I didn't want to go down that path. That almost felt more unethical to me <laughs> in a weird twisted way where I was like, oh, if I'm going to do the work, I'd rather just do it here. Mm-hmm. So this is what resulted in finish line mindset, which I started when I was still working in the schools, trying to see if I could make it a side hustle that could fulfill that role. So I could get past that, the salary fear that I was having and the lifestyle mm-hmm. fear I was having. And it turned out that that wasn't going to be realistic for me to have work life balance and to also be able to pour myself into my 400 or 1400 kids I was working mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. And then also devoting myself into this brand new programming that was going to take so much of my effort up front to make it happen. So the first year and a half of my business, I had zero business because I wasn't putting in the work. I wasn't doing mm-hmm. the marketing. I was, mm-hmm. I, you can imagine that school-based work was draining enough. I didn't want to go home and then file my taxes mm-hmm. and, and yeah. set up programming yeah. and go to networking groups. It just wasn't, it wasn't happening. So I can feel that because I worked in the school systems as well as a school-based counselor doing very similar, like tons of crisis response. And I had Mm -hmm. um, gone into private practice part-time and in the evenings on a week, like Saturdays, and it is so draining. And I feel like so many of us do that where we're trying to start thinking about something else, whether that's coaching, private practice, other things we're doing. And it is so hard, like you're saying, to balance our energy, like our excitement, our work-life balance. It's so challenging. But I feel you on that school level because working in schools is its yeah. own special place. <laughs> Amazing, and I but wanted special. <laughs> so desperately, exactly. I wanted so desperately for it to work. Mm-hmm. I wanted to make my side hustle, like, and I priced myself out of whatever range I thought people would pay for. So if I got clients, when I got clients it was going to happen for me and it was going to make my my financial dreams come true but i still wasn't putting in the work mm-hmm. so even though i priced myself where i thought i needed the value and i'm learning that there are people that will pay that it's it wasn't going to be worth it it was it's it's a lot yeah school based work low resources high stress huge case volume um but i also hear that it was incredibly rewarding and i can relate to that personally um for those of you who who know or are members of the network like you know my my work is a little eclectic and that's the way I love it and I can relate to your story so much Tara because of this push-pull of wanting to do the good work wanting to make the big impact wanting to do what we got into this field to do but also wanting to be financially secure and be able to take time off and retire period (laughs) like I'm not yeah. asking for an early retirement. I just want to be able to retire. Right. Um, and I say that facetiously, but it, it's true. It's this push-pull between the rewarding but draining work and knowing you're making an impact that's so hard. It was very hard. It still is very hard for me to give up any any area of my life where I know I'm making an impact in someone else's life, even if it's 
pulling away from mine. And it sounds like that's what you recognize, that the work is rewarding, you know it's valuable, you know it's needed, and these kids um, are benefiting from it, but the work was draining you. You recognized 20 hours of therapy a week is not for you long-term, and that's Mm -hmm. completely fine. I wish... I wish, you know, uh, some of us could recognize this earlier in our career, but thankfully our educations, we can pivot, we can do different things. And that's what you started to explore, which was this, okay, I'm not ready to fully give up my work. Also stability, there's stability that comes with uh, with, uh, an employment, right? Even if it's draining and not paying you nearly enough, at least it's a consistency. Um, That's health insurance. And then, you know, (laughs) it's health insurance. Don't get me started. Big piece. And, but, you know, you're saying like, this isn't working for me. This work isn't working for me. The finances aren't working for me. What are my options? And then, you know, you explored performance coaching. And um, I would love to hear about what went through your head when you like entertained the idea of being a coach, because um, those of you who, again, I think I started to say this, but know me, know that I do have a clinical practice um, in my rural hometown in which I am so privileged to serve the community that literally raised me. Um, but also, I have always had an executive coaching practice, and it's been my private practice since before I came back to my hometown to practice clinically here. And so that has been a consistent part of not only my education, um, I did um, a leadership track and an org track in my in my PsyD program, but also, you know, it's been a part of my workload this entire time that has given me this consistency. And I feel like you maybe approached it from the opposite um, end of the spectrum where you started clinically and then added coaching. And I would love to hear, you know, what what that was like to entertain the idea of a coach because it does have a lot of, there's a lot of assumptions around what coaching is, what therapists who coach are, what they do, what they don't do. What was that like for you? I love this question because that's like, I'm always on defense about this, right? Because there's right. so Same. many- <laughs> How many Instagram meme pages do I follow for therapy where it's like the argument of therapy versus coaching? And I'm sure you can relate. Like it's not a versus. It's it's like wraparound in a sense. Mm-hmm. I When I'm a coach, mm-hmm. I'm not replacing a therapist. I have mm-hmm. clients that also have therapy outside of me. And mm-hmm. I love that. I Beautiful boundary distinctions. I worked really hard for that. But... I think I got lucky in terms of starting in social work and starting in psychotherapy. I knew that if I was going to go down this route, I already had my population picked. I've been working with athletes since I was an undergrad. So I was working at a very big state school, or I was a student at a very big state school, also working with athletes. I was a resident advisor, and then I was also a tutor in the athletic department. So I got a bit of the behind the scenes of what athletics is and fell in love with it. I've always been competitive myself. I love working with egos, probably why I like working with teenagers so much. And it's really attractive work to me. So I knew that if I was going to have a population that I worked with, it would be athletes. So I already had that basis and that foundation of if that's a direction I'm going to go in, let's do it. But mental health in spaces like colleges and universities or even professional arenas were not happening yet. Now we're seeing spaces where they're literally hiring licensed professionals for professional teams and for um, for colleges and universities for those teams. But that wasn't happening when I was an undergrad or graduating and looking for jobs. I was 
basically looking at going into, um, what was it? Advising. So they have their own advisors mm -hmm. and athletic departments at universities. So I was like, all right, well, I guess that's the route I'm going to go. It's very much aligned with what school counseling looks like now. Um, but the pay might even be even lower, which is unfortunate because there's a lot of money in college athletics, but mm -hmm. we see where it goes. I digress. <laughs> trying not to get myself so, in trouble because these are places I'm trying to get to hire <laughs> me to. <laughs> I totally, I totally understand where you're coming from. And part of it sounds like part of the appeal of coaching was a different payment structure. Was yes. that the case? Yes, definitely that. Um, and at no point in me exploring coaching was me joining a coaching practice, something I thought I'd, I it was going to be an entrepreneurial mm -hmm. endeavor. So mm -hmm. knowing I could price myself, which was also the most anxiety inducing process of starting my business. Mm -hmm. um, now it's, I, I'm very impressed with myself if I do say so myself, it's not a fear I have anymore. Like getting the affirmation that I can ask for my prices and that will be, that can be fulfilled and I don't have to do sliding scale with coaching is wonderful because that's what I set out to do. If I keep doing sliding scale all the time, I'm finding myself in the same concerns I had when I was school-based. Mm -hmm. And yes, I get one cup filled, but the other one doesn't. And I only mm -hmm. wanted to leave the school-based system if I could get all of my cups filled or filled more than they were. Ooh, that's um, a great benchmark mm -hmm. to be thinking about change or, or mm -hmm. a big career shift. It's a really big benchmark. I like yeah. that, the cups filled part. How often do I use the, the, the cups analogy in my work? It works. It's, it fits. Let's pause here for a quick ad break. Are you looking to incorporate more creativity into your clinical practice, but don't know where to start? As a registered art therapist, I truly believe that every clinician can utilize creativity in what they do. I absolutely love offering consultation and supervision to share with clinicians how to ethically incorporate therapeutic art making into their clinical practice. I focus on easy and simple interventions with very little prep work for you and your clients. Visit www.cccs.care to learn more. By the way, the number one support for those of us asking ourselves, am I a bad therapist? Are clinical consultation groups. If you don't have one yet, join us on the Teletherapist Network for unlimited peer consultation groups, including a lot of different specialty groups like clinicians of color, LGBTQ+, couples counseling, EMDR. And of course, Creativity in the Clinical Room hosted by me, Allie. Plus masterclasses, media leads, and everything else you need for an ethical, modern clinical practice. Join us at teletherapistnetwork.com. Moving forward, let's get back to the show. So Tara, I don't know about you, but when uh, when other therapists or even other people, even friends outside of the clinical world, um, learn that I have been doing coaching and psychotherapy for 10 plus years simultaneously, different clients, mm -hmm. but, but having two practices or practicing in two different arenas for over a decade now, the first question I get is what is the difference and how do you offer different services to different people and keep yourself in check? Um, can you speak a little bit to that, um, going from the transition from a psychotherapist to a coach? Absolutely. I think my population has a lot to do with it, too. Mm -hmm. So very rarely am I working with athletes in a therapy space. It does happen. Um, but their needs have to be very, very clear as to what they want to do. So in my coaching practice, part of my tagline is all I need is a goal and an open mind. 
Everything else is up for flexibility. I'm there to meet you where you're at. But if you're looking for 100% guidance, I need, I need a little bit of structure from you. I need that buy-in. I need that commitment because that's going to show me that you have a why and you have a direction to go in. So with coaching, it's very clear with an athlete that they're trying to access this level of competition or they're trying to push past, past something or they're getting over an injury and they need that mental gain. So with my coaching practice, specifically with athletes, I am not doing trauma-based work. We're not digging into where did you learn these things? I might touch on that and say that this is where therapy can take you. But for today, I'm it's skill building. It's specifically mm -hmm. skill building. Mm -hmm. So um, in my coaching practice, I do eight-week programs. That's what I like to highlight. So in those eight-week programs, they are highly structured. I'm talking a lot in our sessions. In therapy, mm -hmm. I talk as little as possible. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to just follow, mm -hmm. reassure, validate, offer solutions and interventions where they're appropriate. But that is based on the need in therapy. So in therapy, it's very much, I'm not very diligent about following um, like CBT to the absolute core. I'm very flexible with that as well. I practice a lot of mindfulness in both therapy and in coaching, which is an interesting crossover. Mm -hmm. So the skills show up, the interventions can look similar. How I implement them or how I introduce them is very different. So in coaching, it's a little less organic. It's you want to access this. You want to be less nervous at the gate. You want to be less nervous as you pull up to, you know, for your free throw shot. Here's what PMR is. Here's what progressive muscle relaxation is. Here's what mindful meditation is. You're in the locker room. Here's what visualization is like. Whereas in therapy, they're describing situations. And I'm like, you know, it would really fit that. Let's try mindfulness. Let's see if this helps resolve some of your anxieties or some of your symptoms. So it's the way we approach the problem, I think, is the biggest mm -hmm. difference in my in my two practices. Jesse, I'm, I couldn't agree more. I'm so glad, too, that you're sharing this because I, I don't know if anyone else is thinking this because I'm not a coach. I don't have enough familiarity with it. So I'll say it just to be the one to say it. Like, I like I just don't know right like enough about coaching except what you see on like maybe the not so great aspects that people see or people yeah. who are doing coaching who are in a you know a different origin story or don't have that background in mental health and I just feel like I never knew the differentiation necessarily or even thinking about it like curious out of curiosity like I'm so glad you explained how you do manage like what's appropriate for therapy, what's appropriate for coaching. So I'm glad that you're talking about this because there can be, like you said, with the meme pages, with that perception, it can sometimes be not amazing, which I don't think is fair. And I'm just hoping that people listening are hearing this and just opening their mind and that understanding. So I'm really happy that we're having this conversation because again, out of my own ignorance, like I just don't know enough about coaching. <laughs> Sure. And I think that boundary setting is so mm -hmm. crucial. Like I am not hungry to just pull from everything and just make everything coaching because it's easier. I don't have to bill or I don't have to diagnose. It absolutely has everything to do with the client's needs. So that is a huge important distinction. And I think the mental health background is, is definitely there. And muddying the waters is going to be there because licensing and all of the work that it takes to get to this place to be a licensed psychotherapist is a lot. It's huge. So I think it's a natural progression for people to find ways to fill in gaps where people aren't getting licensed. I have plenty mm -hmm. of colleagues that struggled to get to licensure if they were able to, if they were able to make the deadlines and make the hours 
And if they weren't able to reach that licensure, is that mental health provider journey over for them? And for some of them, coaching has kind of been a solution for them to still practice, not unethically, but to adjust what they're able to offer. Um, but having that boundary and having that knowledge base and that knowledge set, I think is so important. And that's where I think things get really rocky with the stereotypes. Yeah, I I always say I'm a broken record. I always say that, you know, questions and validation are not, you know, exclusive to therapists. We don't mm-hmm. corner the market on asking good questions and validating. Exactly. And that's not all I do in coaching. I bring a lot of my own expertise, just like you, Tara, to your athletes. Um, but it when you said about, you know, uh, your colleagues who might not have been able to meet licensure um, going into coaching, the first, I mean, I guess initial reaction I had is, ooh, that feels like that feels like a slippery slope. But then I really sat here in this podcast recording and sat with it and thought about it. And I came to the re- the the realization that, you know, I think more dangerous than a clinician who is coaching, who d- like clinicians who went through the education, we know where therapy starts and ends. Mm-hmm. Even though it might differ between individuals, um, we know like what is clear therapy and what is not. And more so than someone who just decides to start coaching without the clinical background. So even though we have the skills that we kind of have to keep in our pocket or our interventions that we have to keep in our pocket sometimes during coaching, we at least know what to do and what not not to do because of our education, right? Our education makes us powerful, but it also makes us knowledgeable about what is ethical and what is not. And so in my, in my view, um, you know, I I don't think there is a a better fit than a clinician who is coaching because they know what to pull and what not to pull to stay ethical, to, to maintain the highest standard and to be effective, right? Um, I think, more dangerous is ignorance around coaching or around clinical skills. Um, that's the scary part for me. And I I just feel like I need to put this disclaimer out there that if any clinicians are listening to this and thinking about going into coaching, please go educate yourself and get supervision and me- get a mentor or a consultant, someone else, a therapist who is coaching so that they can, you know, help you understand the differences and the ethics. This is this episode is not enough to start coaching. <laughs> Just because just because this field of coaching is unregulated doesn't mean you can enter into it just willy nilly or you should or it's ethical to do that. Um, I think the the lack of regulation um, does not excuse us from the ethics and the knowledge behind it, especially as licensed clinicians. We need to hold ourselves to a much higher standard. Absolutely. It's it's not an easy way out. If anything, it's more complicated to practice both or segue completely from therapy into coaching. It's, it's muddied. Um, I'm a broken record as well. When I talk about, I'm a professional listener. That's the foundation of my work and education didn't make me good at listening. It's, I truly believe it's part of my nature to be in this role and there's no regulation that can take that from me, but how do I work with it to provide Mm -hmm quality, ethical, productive results for people. I also have to reflect, and I feel like I'm, I'm talking a lot this episode, so sorry. No, again, I, but, um, I don't know enough about this. I'm soaking it all in, so please, please. <laughs> I just relate to so much of what Tara's sharing. Yes. Um, Another misconception of coaching, I feel, is that it's going to make you a ton of money or that it's naturally just because you call it coaching means you can charge more. That is not the case. And I think 
anyone listening to this, like, please take in Tara's story where she thought of her ideal client first and then thought, what service is going to best meet my ideal client's needs? And that happened to be coaching. Mm-hmm. I bet you, if Tara, Tara, if you sat with it and you it was clearly clinical and there was more opportunities to help athletes with their clinical skills, that might have been the path you went down. But it wasn't, how can I coach? Oh, I like athletes. It wasn't coaching first. It was ideal client yeah. first. And Absolutely. then what needs met them. That is a huge distinction. And... I think also another big differentiator, Tara, of your practice is that you have um, a framework of coaching, your framework of how you approach coaching, your eight-week programs. You can point to something documented that says, this is my coaching services, and it differs because here it is outlined versus therapy services, which is clearly defined in literature, right? That is a huge differentiator, being very clear and explicit in the services and the populations in which you are serving. Um, I, I just, I'm so happy that you went about setting up your coaching practice in a really um, thoughtful and ethical way that is a really great example to anyone else listening who's interested in coaching, right? Think about who you want to serve first and then think about the services, not vice versa. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that. It's it's something that I, I won't say I fell into. It's extremely intentional. But the mm-hmm. way it came together, right, the balancing and the asking of all of these questions, it took a long time, but this is the best way it came about. So following that path. Still now, on where it. did you <laughs> turn to, who did you turn to for support or where did you turn to when you began to think about, ooh, coaching could be an opportunity to serve this ideal client population? Great question. So someone who actually recently hired me for a part-time role at a major university in Florida they um they are a they are licensed um psychologist they are or actually i believe they're a licensed mft it would be really good if i knew that for well, sure. they're a licensed <laughs> clinician <That's laughs> they're okay. a licensed clinician they have their doctorate and they also have a coaching program specifically for athletes and mental performance i wish i could remember the acronym i could have done my homework Um, But basically, it is mental performance consulting. I know that's part of the Mm. acronym. And it is specifically for athletes. So I discovered this acronym and this certification program. And I, this is when I was still working with the school district. This is when I was exploring what my options were. Like, this certification program would have had me basically do my MSW and LCSW all over again. It is very intensive. It requires coursework, supervision, out, like, practicum it required a lot so he and i were in contact for a little while just touching base he was hired at a university when i was working there and then i left that university he and i have very similar philosophies about mental health and athletics so naturally we just stayed in touch so i reached out to him and asked him is this something i should be exploring if i'm considering quitting my job to do this full time and he gave me the very honest and wonderful answer of you are a licensed clinician you don't need it. We are moving in that direction of mental health care, where this consulting certification will open doors for you. But your LCSW will also take you where you need to go because we're opening our eyes to that space for our athletes to get licensed care from this specific profession rather than the consulting realm. So he gave me that super honest, very clear answer, gave me a little bit more details as to why it may not be worth my time. Um, But he's been a huge mentor in this process to kind of relieve some of my fears that I was going to have to go back to school, 
and do this all over, which would have had me just start from scratch and be like, all right, I'm just going to do therapy forever. Then I'm just going to, I'm going to resign myself to that. Cause I was not, I was not going to go through another program (laughs) like that. Oh, once was enough. And so he's been huge. And then I am a big fan of cold calling on good old LinkedIn. (laughs) So if I find people who are in my field or in player development or, you know, people who are, posting and reposting things on Instagram and LinkedIn about athlete mental health. I am following, I am connecting. I'm finding people who are writing books. There's a really phenomenal um, mental coach called Trevor Moad. Um, He passed last year, a year and a half ago now, but he has left such a huge legacy for mental coaching and athletics. And his father was a psychologist. So he brings in a lot of that basis into his work. Um, extremely inspirational. So his colleagues started a, a facility just outside of Orlando that I've been following and trying to tune into and get connected with. So a long convoluted way to answer is I have this one, one uh, <laughs> fellow licensed person who has done a thousand and one things to get into this profession and do his work. And he's very well respected. That's opened me up to meet a lot of other people peripherally who I connect with and meet with and touch base. And we share not so much consultations, but a little bit of consultation, a lot of entrepreneurial spirit type conversations and leading me into these roles to see facilities and to see organizations opening this up. So like I said, long road to say this one person and then a lot of organizations on LinkedIn. (laughs) There is nothing like peer consultation and having that one-on-one guidance, absolutely nothing like it. I could not I could not have asked for a better better response because that is exactly how I still have my coaching mentors from graduate school when I learned about it. So it is it is incredible to have that that guide, someone who has gone there before you to be able to identify, not necessarily solve the potholes in your way, but at least point them out before you get to them. Um, so that's amazing. So Tara, we kind of diverted a little bit from the original topic of conversation, which was, am I a bad therapist for leaving a school system and creating a coaching practice, which is not mental health? Well, it's not licensed mental health services. Uh, it's not healthcare, um, and make more money in the process. What advice would you give to someone who is in a similar situation, burning the candle at both ends at a rewarding and valuable job, but not going to get them to retirement? Or, or a lifestyle that, that their education should support um, and is considering, is maybe on the fence and maybe in that year-long limbo you experienced where you're not quite ready to make that leap yet, but you want to, but you know you need to. What advice would you give to someone in that, in that space? Uh, what I did, and I'm not sure if it made it six months to a year of me in that limbo space, but I'm a research person. So mm-hmm. I was reading books specifically on the topic of mental game. So the mental competition, the mental strife of athletes, I was reading books about from coaches and from other people who have studied this. I was rereading books from undergrad and grad school, like flow, um, the gift of fear. I was rereading these to see if there was a direction I could take. So that was my research into if I'm going to make a program, what am I basing this on? And then I was reaching out to a lot of people who were doing what I was aspiring to do, whether it was in the exact same space of working with athletes, whether it was coaching in general, um, because I'd heard of executive coaching. So I'd spoken to some executive coaches uh, that I met on LinkedIn. 
I also highly encourage going to networking events. You do not have to have an idea or a business to go to networking events. It is so great to meet potentially like-minded individuals. They are like-minded. If you're thinking of branching out and doing something like this, you have that spirit to connect with people and really test your test your ability to make those connections and to reach out because that's half the work is unpaid. <laughs> reach mm-hmm. out, networking, make the connections. So if you have the social battery and the time and the resources to make those kinds of connections, whether they're virtual or in person, events, books, connecting with people who are where you would like to be. I think it's, that's definitely, it's a contagion. And I think that really helped me push into that direction. Now, I have a question. I'm going to, normally we just do the one and we're done, but I have to still ask for, is there like something you wish that you could say or talk about from four therapists like myself who don't have as much knowledge or experience with coaches, do you wish there was something that we could know or how to collaborate together or have it, like you said earlier, not be that versus, like that kind of tension or feeling? Like, is there anything that as therapists we could do? Or I don't know. I'm really just kind of rambling, but I feel like hopefully you're getting what I'm meaning by my question. How can we make this a little bit less of a stereotype yeah. type question of coaches versus therapists? Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. I think conversation is mm-hmm. powerful. Um, conversation and connection is so powerful and being willing to listen to people. So it is easy to fall into a bias of if you believe coaches are all, forgive me, whack jobs or fake therapists, mm-hmm. it's easy to find that and, and mm-hmm. kind of give yourself that self-fulfilling prophecy. It is absolutely mm-hmm. easy to find that. If you give yourself room to speak to myself or Catherine, listen to podcasts like these, listen to ideas or case consultations, it's like working with case managers. They have such a different skill set, and that's the idea. But I think it's conversation and the openness mm-hmm. to hear that there is room for all of us, because I do believe that. Absolutely. I, I had a hard time believing that at first, too. I was like, how? That was the question. How do I, I'm going to use the word abandon again, mm-hmm. my therapy practice in the schools to pursue this and still stay true to where what I'm trying to be. Is there room for me to wear both hats or do I have to pick one? And I think in opening up my conversations with people who do have both hats, that helped a lot. Mm -hmm. But I've definitely met coaches that I think we're not practicing with Mm -hmm. the fidelity of coaching. We're not practicing Mm -hmm. with their client's best intentions in mind it was a money grab for them but we see that with therapists too that's why I feel like it's not really fair exactly it's not fair to have that kind of mindset and because I have a respect absolutely for coaches and what everyone does but it's not fair to say like well there are the people who are doing it unethically or this or that because we all know there are therapists who do the same thing in this field they're everywhere there's unethical people in every field absolutely exactly I would just but say, if you look for that one direction, you're gonna find right. it. Mm-hmm. So open mindedness, mm-hmm. have conversations, see where people are taking it and how it fits into our scheme of wraparound care. Like this could be mm-hmm. this could be a good direction. I would also say identify and challenge those assumptions. Mm-hmm. Where are those where are your assumptions about coaches coming from? Are they coming from your experiences? How many experiences have you had? Have you purposefully sought out different experiences with coaches? Are they coming from a place of fear or insecurity? Are they coming from a place of inferiority? Are they coming from a place of jealousy? I don't know. But identify those assumptions and, and challenge them gently like we would do with any of our clients, right? 
Um, because we're not all unethical. We're not all greedy. In fact, my coaching practice allows me to serve my underserved community in a big way, big way. And that allows me to do that. And I'm so grateful that my coaching practice does. Like, I'm going to get tearful when I think about how much Mm -hmm. I love serving my community. Um, But like, uh, we're not all unethical. And I think because it's an unregulated field, it gets that Mm -hmm. reputation. Um, But our ethics don't go out the window just because we put a coach in front of our name. Right, right. And there is a code. So when you go through Mm -hmm. any kind of training, which full disclosure, I'm taking advantage of the fact that it's unregulated. I am not a certified coach. I don't advertise Mm -hmm. myself as a certified coach. Um, I think that will change in my lifetime, though. I think it will Mm -hmm. become more regulated. And I don't know about title protected, but I do believe that there will be some some expectation and a higher Mm -hmm. standard that'll happen relatively soon because of this influx. Um, And I'm not opposed to it. Mm-hmm. Well, I love where this conversation has gone. Hopefully for our listeners, it does just open that door, open people's minds in case there is that judgment or jumping to assumptions or things like that. Um, and Tara, if anyone listening does want to connect with you, whether that's to talk about what you do, um, to talk at, like as therapists, just connection in general, where can they find you? Absolutely. So my social medias are all at Finish Line Mindset. That is my brand. That's my company. I am on Instagram, TikTok, um, you can always email me. That's Tara at finishlinemindset.com. My website, finishlinemindset.com. Um, so you can see what my programs are about. Um, there's a lot of information about what kind of eight-week programs I offer. If anyone's looking at what that structure looks like specifically for my population, you can kind of get a take a gander at that and get a better sense of who I am and why I'm able to serve those populations. My podcast that I also have with Sherry, uh, my former clinical supervisor, is Let's Be Real. If you're looking it up, um, add Sherry and Tara to it, S-H-E-R-I, because there is a, there's a couple of podcasts called Let's Be Real. But if you want to find mine, it's a blue icon. It's a great time. Social media uh, would be at Let's Be Real Sherry and Tara, also TikTok and Instagram. Perfect. Well, we'll link everything as we always do. But thank you again so much for coming on today. I love this conversation. Um, and thank you for being here with us. Thank, thank you, you guys Tara. so much for hosting. And that's it. The OG bad therapists, Allie and Catherine, are signing off for the week. Make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We pick a few lucky five-star reviewers to shout out and invite for a 15-minute consultation with the both of us to talk about anything on your mind. From clinical work to podcasting, we're game. Just make sure to leave us your name and location in the review. Are you a bad therapist and want to be on the show? Go to abadtherapist.com and tell us your story. Our podcast is produced and edited by my amazing husband, Austin Joy. He also created the music for our intro and outro. You can find this song along with many others on any music platform under the artist Air for Effect. And if you're a bad therapist starting your own podcast or wanting to level up the one you already have, contact Austin for his full suite of podcast and sound production services. You can find him on Instagram at Air for Effect. And don't forget, we're all bad therapists. <laughs>